0: Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast,
1: a series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges,
2: and joy in ministry today.
0: These episodes are inspired by interactions with ministry leaders from across the country
2: as they
3: explore possibilities,
2: learn from broad perspectives, take risks, and cultivate candid discussions
0: that generate disruptive creativity.
1: Hi friends, this is Adam Borneman with The Ministry Collaborative, and today I'm with my colleagues Jennifer Waltley maxell Ryan Bonvillio, and Mark Ramsey. And we are considering this theme of forgiveness, especially forgiveness across our broader culture. Really interesting series in the publication Vox this spring on forgiveness and the limits of forgiveness, forgiveness's relationship to justice, the complexity of forgiveness with those who cause us pain. And of course, what an important topic for the church to consider in this time in a culture that wrestles with this so mightily. So I want to swing it wide open to my colleagues and get your gut reaction to this theme. What do you immediately think of when you think of the challenge of forgiveness in our culture?
0: So I think part of it is that when we talk about forgiveness, it is so incredibly countercultural, right? That culture right now is steeped in a moment of you get what you deserve, And when you don't get what you deserve, something is wrong. And so I think one of the reasons why forgiveness is so difficult to talk about, not to mention to do, is because we live in a graceless era. And you cannot have forgiveness without grace. And without the language of grace, I think it's hard to even conceive of and talk about what forgiveness really is all about. and. I think some of it is the lack of our language. I've been listening to Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart book. And one of the points she makes is that when it comes to our emotions, that we cannot express what we don't have language for. And I think forgiveness is one of those types of things as well, where we can't express forgiveness without language to express it in. And I think part of it is a language issue in terms of culture and where we are in our society right now.
3: And with that, Jennifer, I mean, forgiveness is a two-sided street. We can either be the forgiver or the one who seeks forgiveness, and both of those come really hard to us at this present moment. I think your comments about having the language to speak these things, I think of our prayers of confession used in my own Presbyterian tradition. I love that our tradition has a prayer of confession as part of every Sunday service, which is great, but so often I notice that the prayers of a confession are just so grand and vague. Oh God, forgive me for all the things that I might have done.
1: Or the things I might not have done. <laughs>
3: or them too, right? But it's all very vague. I think we almost are more comfortable with these sweeping acknowledgments that maybe somehow technically, theologically were sinful, but then to actually stop and name the particularity of our sinfulness is really hard for us. And if we don't do that, it's actually really hard to be forgiven
2: if we can't name the specificity of what we've done wrong. Not to go back to Theology 101 with this, but there is the notion of God's forgiveness of us and all that means, and then there's how we forgive and are forgiven by each other. Ryan, to your point, the roles aren't detached. forgive E and forgive are inextricably linked. In ways that are uncomfortable for both. You're either having to admit that you were not the person you were meant to be in letting someone down or injuring them. And you have to say, I have every right to hold on to this. Jennifer, to your point, we love holding on to stuff. I have to release holding on to this and offer it back. Both of those are dislocating roles that at our best we should be playing all the time. In the era of cancel culture, I want to hold on to everything I can because who knows I'm going to use it as a good defense.
0: Yeah. And Adam, in your opening question, you know, you talked about the idea of restorative justice, which is something that we're talking a lot about. But let's be clear, a lot of times forgiveness is not just that Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. There are times when we have to forgive people who know what they're doing. <laughs> And who have no intentions of making it right. Mm -hmm. And that is what at least the Christian construct of forgiveness is. And so I think in some ways forgiveness is tough because it flies in the face of what we want in terms of what our ego desires And what our ego desires and what our hearts and souls crave are not the same. And I think we haven't really done enough to really explore how what our soul craves and desires is not the same as our ego. And as long as we keep it at the ego level, then our soul is always going to be starved.
1: Yeah, that's really good. As you're talking, Jennifer, it occurs to me that we often think of forgiveness as A passive behavior that we're just kind of you know, as Mark said, it is true that we're we're kind of letting something go. But I also think we need to complement that with a real active dimension to forgiveness, even a prophetic dimension. That forgiveness in a culture that is so bent on getting what you deserve, in that culture, forgiveness is a radical and prophetic act to say, "You don't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. I'm forgiving you because God loves the whole world." So that sort of disorienting, radical witness is much more of an active way of exhibiting the gospel. Now, I think that that doesn't mean, and therefore it's over and there will be no justice. I I think it's, and we're going to restore this and reconcile this. So there needs to be uh, both and, and it is complicated and messy, but I think that's why forgiveness is so fundamental to the life and ministry of Jesus, because it is such a counter to everything. To how the world works. It is not what people deserve. It's actually
0: quite the opposite in most cases. I think you really hit on something there, Adam, when we talk about the way we kind of conflate all of this terminology. So, restorative justice, forgiveness, fairness, accountability, equity. Like, we take all of these terms that are scrolling around now and we kind of just plop them on top of one another and then squeeze it together like a sandwich and we just kind of take a bite of it, not realizing that they are not to be conflated; that they each have a role in this work of justice that we are moving forward. And it's a very unique and distinct role that each one plays. And I agree that in not fully letting forgiveness kind of have its due and stand on its own and function as it is intended to function, we lose something very fundamental in this discussion, and not just in the discussion, but in the actual practice of justice in our society.
3: I think fundamentally, at a theological level, we have a hard time squaring our belief in a God of justice and our belief in a forgiving God. Those two beliefs, I think, really cut against one another for many of us, because we fear That if we do forgive and believe in a God of forgiveness, that it won't align with our demands and hopes for justice, right? Or maybe another way of saying it is, we're comfortable with a God who forgives, but only if that God forgives the sorts of sins that we commit, and not the sins that others commit. And there's this line from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It's right after the calf gate scandal where the Israelites build this golden calf when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God reveals God's self to Moses. And it's precisely at the moment when you expect God just to wipe out all of the Israelites for their idolatry. And God has this wonderful line. God says, "'The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love,' And forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And there's this wonderfully purposeful redundancy in the Hebrew language. It uses every single word in the Hebrew vocabulary to talk about transgression and sin, and only one would have been needed. And I wonder if part of the message there is just to reiterate no, God covers each and every type of sin, yours, and your neighbors, the one that fits with your own vices, but also the ones that really irk you and cause problems in society. It pushes us past this sense that God only forgives the types of sins that we commit.
2: Mm. One of the um, traits of an adolescent is to go through the it's not fair period of time. I will say, in my daughter's case, it lasted, it seemed like forever. And I kept going back to the developmental book, seeing what's next. It's Nothing could be worse than this. How long this. is it
1: going to last for my four-year-old who's already...
2: <laughs> it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. That seems to be the litany. I think for most of us, we never totally get out of that. We want it to be fair. But right to your point, we want it to be fair for us. And then if it can trickle down to everyone else, that's wonderful. To extend the biblical witness, the post-resurrection appearance in John 21, where the chapter ends with Jesus and Peter having the face-off, Peter, do you love me, and all that, after that little uh, problem with denying Jesus three times. But the interesting thing about that entire chapter is first Jesus appears, directs the fishing, tells them where to fish, gets their fish, and offers them breakfast, and then has this conversation with Peter. Never in that does Jesus seek to relitigate, going, before we have this conversation, I'd like to go back to that night a few nights ago. Do you remember (laughs) the courtyard? Is any of this ringing a bell, Peter? To make sure Peter could wallow. Instead, it was completely directed. Directed toward future service. Feed my sheep, go love the world. One of the things we have to say about forgiveness is it is not just so we can get right or feel okay, it is so we can be more fully equipped to meet the needs of the world and love as God loved. I think everything in forgiveness ultimately just equips us to be the best person we can to be God's person in the world. That's far from personal transaction.
0: Yeah, and I also think that it also takes us out of this idea that forgiveness and justice are things that must occur right now in the here and now. That all of what forgiveness is orienting us to is to something beyond where we are, something other than what we are, that it's always pushing us beyond the moment where we are now. And I think that's another thing that we have lost in a lot of our discourse, that we want justice and we want it now. Yes, I want justice and I want it now, but also realizing that the full experience of that is not going to come in this present time. Mm -hmm. And that forgiveness is one of the ways that we are able to live in love and charity with one another until this final work of justice comes. That it is the way that we act with one another, that we are in community together, that helps us to get to this ultimate end that we seek.
1: Ryan mentioned earlier this weekly example of statements of confession and absolution in so many of our congregational settings and how sometimes they're so big that they don't really land anywhere in particular. So I'm wondering if we can talk for a moment about the particular practice of confession and forgiveness in congregational settings and what that might look like moving forward. Well, one small piece of that,
3: Adam, is that I think with respect to Christian leaders, it's hard for me to imagine any idea of Christian leadership in a congregational setting that doesn't involve the frequent use of the phrase, I'm sorry, to the people we work with, to our families, to our children, to our parents, to our staff members. I think Christian leaders, you know, they might lead that prayer of forgiveness on a Sunday morning, but never is that word uttered outside of that moment. Mm. And I think to form authentic relationships, trusting Mm. relationships, we have to be able to say those words and really mean it. And I just don't see that happening among many Christian leaders.
0: I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine, and it was one of those conversations where it went left really quickly. And as I was thinking about it later, what I realized was that something I had said, my reaction to what she said was based on like something I was dealing with. So I called her later, and I was like, hey, I was thinking about our conversation, and I think I owe you an apology because I feel like I let my stuff get in the way of what you were bringing to the table in this conversation. And she said in response, I accept your apology and I receive your word. Mm. I think there is something to not just knowing and understanding how to confess, but it's also how do we receive forgiveness? Because I think part of it is that the feeling that even if I go and confess or apologize or try to make amends, this person isn't really going to forgive me. And I think that, that again, forgiveness is not just a term. It is a spiritual practice, and it is a spiritual posture that we sit in. And I think as leaders in churches and congregations, to really be able to talk about that, what does it mean to be a person that not just you know, requires forgiveness, but is forgiving of others. What does that look like practically? And how do we offer that as gift and as witness to those around us? Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative podcast,
2: a project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation.
1: The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities.
0: Our producer is Marthane Sanders.
3: To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website
1: at
2: www.ministrycollaborative.org.